Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast interview episode on Antigonus II Gonatus with Robin Waterfield. Once again, everyone, today I have with me Robin Waterfield, an independent scholar and writer on the ancient world. A classicist by training, Robin has translated numerous works for publishers like Oxford World Classics, with such authors under his belt like Plato, Plutarch, and Polybius, just to name a few. He has also published several non-fiction books about the classical and Hellenistic period, and today he is here to discuss his latest work, The Making of a King, Antigonus Gennatus of Macedon and the Greeks, which is slated for release this April. First off, I'd like to just say welcome and thank you very much for joining on with, with the show. Well, thank you, Derek. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, uh, beyond my cursory introduction, could you tell us a bit more about your background and what ultimately inspired you down the path of ancient historian and prolific author? Um, goodness, I don't know. How far back do you want to go? I mean, even when I was a child, if I had, you know, if somebody gave me a book to open for Christmas, I was likely to spend it on a book on ancient Greek history or archaeology or something like that. I live in Greece now. And in fact, I've just gained Greek citizenship on top of my British citizenship. And I like to say that I think my body is English, but my soul is Greek. So I've just always had this, I've always had this attraction to Greek history. In fact, I spent quite a lot of my uh, professional career doing philosophy. But uh, increasingly, I've been doing more and more history over the past 20 years or so. I don't know. I've just always loved it. I mean, some people just love history, right? I guess you do, too. So it just happened to be ancient Greek. I, I had a very traditional English education. I started Latin at the age of eight and Greek at the age of 10. And so, you know, classics was kind of imbued into me from an early age. And it just so happened that I, I loved it, whereas most of my 10-year-old uh, colleagues were saying, well, we don't want need to study dead languages. It's boring. It's boring. And so on like that. But I just I just took to it. Now, you have written multiple books on the Hellenistic age, uh, namely Dividing the Spoils, which is centered around the wars of Alexander's successors and Taken at the Flood, which is based on the Roman conquest of Greece. Your upcoming book, The Making of a King, sort of acts as a midquel to these, uh, primarily focusing on the early to mid third century B.C., how does writing about this time period compare to your earlier works, at least when it comes to sources? And why did you choose Antigonus Gennatus as your focal point for the structure of the book? Well, um, yes, I have ended up writing a trilogy. It, it wasn't intended, really. I wanted to do a book on the successors. That was the first one, Dividing the Spoils, because it's just such a fascinating period. Then I wanted to do one on the Roman conquest, which is my book, Taken at the Flood. You know, I write for a fairly for a fairly popular audience. I mean, scholars read my books as well, but I'm also writing for just people who enjoy history. So there's this quirk in my character where I want to try to study and explain the most obscure and difficult periods of history, and the Roman conquest was one of them. But yeah, the bit in between, so when I decided, I actually came around to wanting to write about the third century BC and Antigonus in particular, because I wrote a general history of Greece for Oxford University Press called Creators, Conquerors and Citizens, and found that researching the third century was was really quite tricky. I mean, nobody had written extensively about it. And so I decided to do it again, because it's a really obscure period of history. And I like to study obscure periods of history and make them accessible to people. So was it different from writing the other two books? Yes, very. There is no continuous historical narrative for the third century BC, none whatsoever. For the period earlier, we've got, above all, Diodorus of Sicily, and he certainly wrote about the third century, but the books he wrote about the third century are all lost. 
his work comes to an end in 301. And by the way, talking about the books I've written about Hellenistic history, that's an important one as well. I've translated Diodorus of Sicily, books 16 to 20, with a copious annotation, which is all about the reign of Philip II, Alexander the Great, and the successors. So that's that's a good one of my good contributions, I think, to Hellenistic history. So we have sources for the earlier period, and we have sources for the later period. We've got Polybius and Livy, the main sources for the uh, Roman conquest of Greece. But for the period in between, we have no consecutive narrative history at all written by an ancient author. We've got snippets here and there, anecdotes. We've got the normal kind of insofar as we can make deductions or inferences from the numismatic evidence, from archaeological evidence. And very important for the third century, we've got inscriptions. The great book about Antigonus Gonatas was written in 1913 by a man called Sir William Tarn. And in terms of literary evidence, not a great deal has changed since he was writing. But in terms of inscriptional evidence, a great deal has changed since he was writing. And so really, if, if you like to see my book as an update of Tarns, then that's the main difference. I've been, I've been able to draw on far more epigraphical evidence than he had available. And so, yeah, we're just we're reliant on bits here and bits there, and out of which to try to put together the jigsaw puzzle of the third century. And I mean, I decided to make Antigonus the kind of the linchpin because he reigned. I mean, he was born in 319. He was king of Macedon from roughly the middle of the 270s until 239. So he kind of sits astride the third century because Macedon was still dominant over mainland Greece. He doesn't only sit astride the century, but he was influential on Greek history. He was one of the keys or the triggers for what was happening in further south from Macedon in, in the Greek states. And so it made sense to make him the, uh, the linchpin of, of the book. Moving to the main man himself, uh, when compared to his father, Demetrius I Polyarchides, and his grandfather, Antigonus the One-Eyed, Antigonus II Gonatas is a much more subdued character, and not really thought of as a great commander or having possessed a bombastic personality like his predecessors. But arguably, Gonatas was the main reason behind the stability of the dynasty and Macedonia as a whole during the Hellenistic period, at least as long as it lasted. How did Antigonus manage to restore Macedonia to its former glory after it faced nearly 30 years of civil wars and invasions? I should start, I think, by saying that if you describe him as a more subdued character, that may simply be due to the lack of evidence that we were just talking about. I mean, you're calling him subdued because you know less about him. We know less about him. But that is simply a product of the sources. If we still had Diodorus's books, then he would be far more on people's lips than he is at the moment. And that's really why I wrote the book, was as much as anything to try to restore him to what I see as his proper place in history. But yeah, because you're right, he did stabilize Macedon after 30 years of history. And this was not an easy job. And because of the lack of evidence, we can't go into really great detail about how he did it, but the fact is that he did. Now, you see, for instance, one of the first problems he would have faced was that Macedon was a kind of a buffer state to the northern tribes, like the Tribalians and the people from the northwest from, from Illyria and so on and so forth. And undoubtedly, he would have had to face invasions or potential invasions from these people, but we don't know about them. Uh, we can only guess that there were some, but he seems to have kept things quiet on the northern and western borders, and that alone is a remarkable feat because Macedonian kings were perennially plagued by these barbarian, as they called them, invasions. More particularly in terms of like sort of what he did internally within Macedon, I see him as a great reformer. 
I should explain again that because of the lack of evidence, what we've got, you see, is we, we know what the situation was let's, in Macedon, let's say, 40 or 30 or 50 years later than Antigonus. And we know what the situation was before him. And so I'm guessing that the changes that led to the later situation were put in place by him. And I think that's probably right, because, as you said, there was an urgent need for somebody to stabilise Macedon, and I think it was him, and I think it would have obviously been his priority. So I don't think there's any real difficulty in my claim that he was a great reformer, because that's what Macedon needed. And what he did, put it at its most, I mean, I don't want to get too technical about this, but what he did was he kind of devolved some of his own and his inner circle's power further down the scale. The Macedonian system, by and large, before his time, had been that rulership, and administration was carried on by the king in conjunction with his council of people who were known as his companions or friends. They were his inner circle, they were the ones who acted as his administrators, generals, ambassadors, and everything else. They were the government, or the heads of ministries, if you like, under more or less absolute kingship of a Macedonian king. A Macedonian king was limited by tradition, because all monarchs are limited by tradition, and also by the fact that he had to be able to get on with his with his council of friends. But that was all. That was pretty much all there was to government before Antigonus, particularly during the war years of Alexander's invasion of the East and so on and so forth. There wasn't room for much more administration than that. But what Antigonus did was, as I said, he devolved it further down. He created Macedon as, as a kind of a, a layered federal state with him, obviously, at the top, and he remained a very powerful monarch. He had the right to intervene at any stage of the administrative process and uh, impose his will upon it. But him at the top, and then the Council of Friends, and then he divided Macedon into four sections, each of which had a, a chief governor who was a general who was on the Council of Friends and so could report back about that. And then within each of these four sections, um, already before his time, the larger cities like uh, Amphipolis and Pella and Thessalonica and places like that already had their own administrative structures with council and assembly and magistrates and so on and so forth. And Antigonus moved that much further down the scale so that even the smaller towns now had that same structures and therefore were to a much larger extent than they had been before, were self-governing. They were responsible for their own citizen roles, their own finances and so on, after they'd paid their taxes to the throne. And even below the towns, each of the towns also had a set of dependent villages underneath it as well. And the you know senior men of the villages were represented on the town council, and the town council could get heard by the council of friends back in Pella. And so there, was, there were good channels now of communication between the king and even the lowliest subjects of his kingdom. And he uh, had put in place all these structures, which gave them much more responsibility for their own lives. I mean, he arrived in Macedon more or less as a pretender, without really much more claim to the throne than about half a dozen other people who he had to fight off and did so very successfully. So this was a good way, I think, for him to appease particularly the barons of the land who might not have been so keen on his becoming king, but he was sort of saying, no, I'm going to make these changes. I'm going to stabilize the country in this way. And they perhaps saw the value in it and went along with him for that reason. So something like that, in brief, I mean, as I say, it gets rather technical and there's, there's more of the details in my book, but that's pretty much how he went about stabilizing Macedon, as I see it. 
Given that paucity of our sources on Antigonus, I find one of the most unique things about him is his prominence in the philosophical circles at the time, uh, which are mainly preserved in the anecdotes of Athenaeus and Plutarch, and kind of makes him, I hate to try to always use analogies like this, but like a Hellenistic equivalent of a Marcus Aurelius as a philosopher king. Do you think that there is any real strong evidence for this tradition, or do we just tend to latch onto this idea because there is so relatively little information about Antigonus in the first place? Yes, there's an element of truth in what you just said. And it's not just Athenaeus, it's Diogenes Laertius uh, and his lives of the eminent philosophers gives us quite a lot of our anecdotes about Antigonus come from that, because as you say, he hung out with philosophers. But was he, well, A, I don't think Marcus Aurelius was a philosopher king either. Um, I, my translation of Marcus Aurelius and heavily annotated has just come out, so you've touched a chord there. <laughs> but B, certainly I don't think Antigonus was a philosopher king at all. Yes, he was friends with philosophers, and most importantly with uh, Zeno of Citium, the founder of the Stoic school. But you have to put this in context. It was it was perfectly normal for a well-educated and wealthy young man from a wealthy family for his higher education to culminate in a course of philosophy either with one teacher or by going to the lectures or seminars of several teachers. And Antigonus, when he was studying as a young man in Athens, the end of the fourth century, certainly met and studied with Zeno. And he probably hung out with others as well, like Menedemus of Eretria and anybody else who was of an age not rather than the Stoics of the next generation, but he also got to know. And it was also, I mean, later in life, he invited Zeno to come and join his court. And uh, Zeno uh, refused the invitation and sent instead another very important Stoic philosopher called Perseus, who was in fact Zeno's adopted son. So it was uh, quite a compliment for Zeno to send. And I mean, Zeno, uh, Antigonus was undoubtedly disappointed that he couldn't get Zeno himself, but he got Perseus, which was a pretty good second best. But that too needs putting in context because it was perfectly normal for, or you know, relatively normal for a king to invite a famous philosopher to come to his court to act as the chief tutor of his son and his son's peers because uh, the ancient Macedonian royal system in the palace was that your son was brought up with uh, a lot of uh, young men of his same age who would then become, or some of whom would then become his friends, his inner circle of advisors when that son in turn became king. But it was perfectly normal, you see, for a king to invite a... F I mean, look, all we have to do is think back to um, Philip II, who got Aristotle to be, I mean, the most famous philosopher in the world at that time, to be the tutor of Alexander the Great. So when Antigonus invited Zeno to come and be the tutor of Demetrius or Alcinous, it would have been at that time, um, there wasn't anything extraordinary in that. And then again, it's not easy to see any effect, any influence of philosophy on Antigonus's you know, deeds, on the events of his life. But it, yeah, I would go as far as saying that he was interested in philosophy, that he was attracted to philosophy. It sounds like he was a clever man himself. And uh, when I say philosophy, I mean particularly Stoicism. His court poet was a man called Aratus of Soli, whose most, most famous poem is called uh, The Phenomena. The Phenomena is basically about the phenomena of the, of the heavens, weather patterns and uh, the heavenly bodies. Uh, and that too is a very Stoicized poem. So yes, Antigonus was was interested in Stoicism, but I don't. I think it's going too far to call him a philosopher ruler. Perhaps if you knew more, but I don't think so, because as you say, we do have we do have the evidence for him uh, for his contact with philosophers, and I don't think it I don't think it entitles us to say more than what I've just been saying. 
The Antigone dynasty was able to hold on to Macedonia, uh, the ancestral homeland of the successor dynasties like the Seleucids who were based in Syria and the Ptolemies who resided in Egypt. But when compared to their rivals, were there any unique benefits or challenges associated with their control of the region of Macedonia and the larger Greek peninsula? I'm not sure they were unique, really. They were different in scale. I mean, Macedon was by far the smallest and also least wealthy of the uh, of the three kingdoms. I mean, it was greatly wealthy, but it was simply less wealthy than Egypt and Syria. But it, it really, I think it was the same set of problems. They all had unruly... Um, uh, you know, subject populations in the same way that Antigonus was constantly having to appease or cope in some way with the Greeks. You know, I mean, Syria was constantly breaking up. Asia Minor was con was was by the time by the time Antigonus came to the throne, Asia Minor was no longer the sort of unified possession of the Syrian king that it had been. There were now about six different smaller kingdoms there, and and the values of the kings were the same as well. When Antigonus was growing up, which were entirely militaristic, you uh, made money by invading somebody else's land and taking prisoners and booty and selling the prisoners and the booty in order to generate more money, in order to hire more mercenaries, in order to take more land. In that horrible cycle of fighting, one very important change that Antigonus made was that he and uh, Antiochus I, the king of Syria at the time, came to an agreement which put an end to that bloody cycle, as I say, invasion, raising revenue, further invasion, etc., etc. Because Antiochus had his eyes, he was one of the pretenders for the Macedonian throne at the time when Antigonus was a pretender for the throne as well. As I said, there were about half a dozen of them. And Antiochus had a pretty good uh, claim to it because his father, Seleucus, had been uh, king of Macedon, although he'd never actually sat on the Macedonian throne because he was uh, assassinated before he got there. But he was the official king of Macedon, so Antiochus had a good claim to it. And Antiochus seemed to have made an effort to make good on this claim. Antigonus stopped him, and at the end of the little war that they fought over this issue, they came to an agreement that they would stay out of each other's territory. It wasn't the first time that such an agreement that kings had tried to put such an agreement into place, but it was the first time that it stayed in place. And that was a huge, and I, I call it an earth-shifting uh, agreement, because that broke this bloody cycle and made, you know, it, it made the kings focus far more not on expansion, but on preservation of their core territories now. You could now, for the first time, say that the kings weren't trying to recover the entirety of Alexander's empire, but for the first time were trying to be kings of a core territory in the first place. Of course they would expand. The Ptolemies and the Syrian kings spent decades, a century, fighting over Koili Syria, fighting over possession of Koili Syria, what we call Lebanon and Palestine. So, of course, they were still wanting to expand, but their, their focus changed to be more internal and not just external. But other than that, I think, I mean, so that was a big change that Antigonus and Antiochus made. But other than that, I don't think there was necessarily many different challenges, just as to say, on a different scale. In book two of his works, Polybius claims that Antigonus was the man who had stalled more tyrants in Greece than any other Macedonian king. Could you describe his domestic and foreign policy when it comes to asserting his authority over the many divisive Greek factions that were under his domain, or whether they believed it or not? <laughs> whether they believed it or not, yeah, they didn't want to be. No, they had to believe they were, but they didn't want to be. Well, he had a... I mean, there were a number of different prongs. It depended on, on who he was dealing with. 
So, for instance, by the time he was on the throne and and increasingly during the first uh, couple of decades of his reign, the Aetolians in central Greece were becoming very strong. They were um, uh, one of the two great federal states of ancient Greece. The others were the Achaeans who started to grow during Antigonus's reign. And the Aetolians expanded from Aetolia, which is in sort of west central Greece, just above the uh, Gulf of Corinth, and expanded until effectively they had incorporated into their federal state all the Greek states of central Greece from coast to coast and up towards Macedon as well. So they were the main Greek power that potentially opposed Macedon. And again, without knowing details, it's absolutely clear that Antigonus was very careful to keep them at bay. He never provoked them into war. He never went to war against them. He never antagonized them in diplomatic terms. He let them get away with steps that some of his advisors must have been saying saying, no, man, you've got to react to this. You know, this was an act of aggression, but he let them get away with it. So I think his policy there for decades was to appease them. And it worked because right towards the end of his reign, when he urgently needed a Greek ally, he was able to arrange an, an alliance with the, with the Aetolians. So I, I congratulate Antigonus. I think, he was a, I think he was a good diplomat because the, the Aetolians really could have been uh, the main threat of his kingdom. Where the other Greeks were concerned, he had Athens. Athens had long been, I mean, even before Antigonus came to the throne, Athens had been garrisoned by uh, Macedonian mercenary troops. And so that was the way he controlled Athens. And he kind of expanded this system of control into the Peloponnese, into southern Greece. Because, okay, there was a Tolia in Athens in central Greece, but southern Granada, the Peloponnese was the potential problem for Antigonus. And he uh, adopted repressive measures there. His father had done so before him, but his grandfather, Antigonus the One-Eyed, had very specifically tried to institute a policy of not imposing garrisons, not imposing friendly rulers on the Greek states, but trying to leave them their own freedom and self-governance autonomy. Antigonus Gonatas went back on that. He uh, either imposed garrisons where he felt they were needed, or he supported people who are sources called tyrants. But that's a fairly extreme word. These Most of these people weren't imposed by Antigonus. They were uh, homegrown men who came to be sole rulers of their state of Elis or Argos or Sicyon or wherever in the Peloponnese. And... Um, you know, they were homegrown, but they then gained the support of Antigonus. We know that one or two of them came to power with Antigonus's uh, help, but more of them retained power with Antigonus's help, and some of them lasted several generations. So this was this was uh, one of the main ways in which Antigonus tried to keep control of the very vital Peloponnese. And the most important element of his control of the Peloponnese was the presence of a powerful Macedonian garrison in Corinth, which again had been there for a while before his reign. But it was absolutely essential to Macedonian control of Greece as a whole, really. Because I don't know whether you've ever travelled, or anybody who's ever travelled in, in Greece knows that as you 
you drive from mainland Greece into the Peloponnese, you've got this huge lump of the Acrocorinth, which is commanding views in all directions and is large enough to house a powerful garrison of soldiers who you did not want to leave behind you. And in fact, it was large enough to house a powerful enough of garrison of soldiers that could simply block the narrow isthmus of the Peloponnese. There were enough soldiers there that they could simply, you know, stop you entering the Peloponnese. So holding the Corinth was vital to Antigonus as to any other Macedonian king. But Antigonus, what the events of Antigonus's reign proved that this was very much a situation of too many eggs in one basket because he lost Corinth eventually. And by losing Corinth, that was effectively the end of Macedonian control of southern Greece altogether. And it was in the fallout from his loss of Corinth that, as I say, at the end that he needed a Greek ally and, and got the Etonians as it happened. But so it depended. So repressive measures, yes, I, I think Polybius is absolutely right about this. Repressive measures, particularly in southern Greece, they, it wasn't like a blanket, you know, there wasn't a tyrant in every city or a garrison in every city, not far from it, but there were enough, you know, wherever you were, you were going to be close to a Macedonian, in southern Greece, you were going to be close to a Macedonian garrison, close enough for that garrison to come out to help you if need be. And we hear stories like this in Tikion when the uh, pro-Macedonian tyrant was expelled and his mansion was set on fire. The flames of the fire could be seen in Corinth where the Macedonian garrison was and they were setting out to come to his aid. So that's why I say he didn't have to do blanket imposition of garrisons and tyrants all over southern Greece, but there were enough for him to be able to control anybody, I think, in Greece at very short notice should he feel the need to do so. And eventually, ultimately, of course, he um, gained control over the Greeks by warfare, because as a result of, well, the constant factor in Antigonus's reign is always a provocation from the Egyptian king, from Ptolemy. And Ptolemy entered into an alliance with both Athens and Sparta. Uh, Sparta brought with it a lot of other Peloponnesian states, and they declared war on Antigonus. And Antigonus is called the Cremonidian War because the chief Athenian statesman who was pushing out that particular boat was called Cremonides. And yeah, they went to war. It was a long war. It was a six-year war. We don't have all the details of it, as usual for anything in the third century. But Antigonus did eventually win. And as a result of winning um, by 362, his control of Greece was then pretty solid for a number of years before, as I say, he then lost Corinth and it started all to go horribly wrong, to go pear-shaped. But up until then, as a result of the Cremonidian War, he was in a good position. So a number of different tactics. Appeasement, I think, or at least diplomacy with the Aetolians, repression in the Peloponnese, and even warfare if it came to it. What were some of the consequences of Antigonus's policies when it came to overseeing Greece, both in the short and the long-term perspective? Despite his ability to maintain the hegemony of Macedon, did they ultimately contribute to paving the way for a takeover by a foreign power, more specifically the Roman Republic? Yes, I, I think they do. I mean, this wasn't entirely Antigonus's fault. Um, his father and grandfather had been unpopular before him, particularly his father, Demetrius. The, the Athenians were very sort of ambivalent towards Demetrius. He came sometimes as a liberator, and they were obsequiously, you know, um, complimentary to him as a result of that. But latterly, in the sort of first decade of the third century, he came more as a conqueror, and uh, they resented that. And he was the first to impose garrisons in Athens and on uh, Athenian soil, and so they resented that. But Antigonus certainly did nothing to help. 
I mean, like I've just said, he defeated Athens. He, he subdued Athens so thoroughly in the Cremonidian War that for a number of years afterwards, he was, Antigonus was more or less the ruler of Athens. He was certainly in a position to say who he wanted to be the top men in Athens for a few years afterwards. And the Athenians had this huge history of pride they were, you know, the top or the equal top state in Greece for ages. They looked back to their defense of Greece against the Persians, you know, 150 or 200 years earlier. They were filled with pride. They hated being humiliated by anybody, let alone people that they could, you know, in their more bitter moods, describe as barbarians, the, the Macedonians. I mean, resentment just built up and built up as a result of um, his repressive measures in particular. And as soon as they could, what happened was that, okay, I've mentioned the Aetolian League, which was gaining strength in, in central Greece. But by the end of Antigonus's reign, there was another confederacy, another federal state, which was growing in the Peloponnese, which started very small in Achaea. But then like the Aetolians, the Achaean confederacy also broke its ethnic boundaries and started inviting people in or making people join who weren't ethnic Achaeans, just as people were in the Aetolian confederacy, states were in the Aetolian confederacy, which weren't ethnically Aetolian states. So the Achaean confederacy started uh, growing in the Peloponnese. It was they who took Corinth and caused the downfall of uh, Antigonid power there. And that was as a result of, you know, that was a reaction to the repressive measures that Antigonus had imposed on the Peloponnese, so that as soon as the Achaean confederacy got powerful enough, states like Elis or Argos would, would join the confederacy, simultaneously throwing out their Antigonus-supported tyrant and the, and the garrison that, that supported that tyrant's rule. So um, it was like a domino effect. I mean, there was one period where in the space of just a few weeks, something like four states chucked out their garrisons and joined the Achaean Confederacy. So, yeah, reaction to Antigonus's repressive measures was, in large part, in the first place, caused the weakening of, of Macedonian power. And then, as you say, along came the Romans. And because of this long history of resentment of Macedonian rule, which Antigonus had done nothing to, to mitigate, then it was fairly easy for the Romans to find allies among the Greek states for their conflict against successive Macedonian kings. Each time the Romans sent a diplomatic delegation around the Greek state saying, you know, come on, which side are you on? There was an implicit threat there, of course, because if they chose the wrong side, they could face the might of Rome, which nobody wanted to. Everybody was well aware of what the Romans were capable of in military terms. So each time they sent one of these delegations around saying, which side are you on? Fewer and fewer Greek states felt capable of, of saying, no, we're going to side with Macedon. And so, you know, again, the history of, of resentment of Macedonian rule, which, uh, as I say, Antigonus fostered, was very responsible for the Roman ability to take over. And then eventually, I mean, I should just summarize this by saying that hatred of the Antigonids, the most sort of vivid demonstration of this happened in the year 200 in Athens. As I say, the Athenians in particular reason for resenting the Macedonians. And in 200, they did this extraordinary sort of political ritual where we use the Latin term for it, a damnatio memoriae, a, da a damning of the memory. They damned the memory of the entire Antigonid 
dynasty, not just in terms of ritual curses, but concretely. In Athens, there were a great many inscriptions recording important decisions that the state had taken. And naturally, over the past uh, 100 years, a great deal of these decisions had mentioned the, uh, an Antigonid king, the one-eyed or Demetrius or Antigonus Gonatas or Antigonus Dosson or his successors, Philip V. And the Athenians erased every single mention of an Antigonid king. And you can actually see the inscriptions. It isn't, I mean, yes, they would have crumbled up some inscriptions, some which were perhaps, you know, dedicated solely to the Antigonid king. But where there were, where there was a long inscription, where there was, uh, you know, a lot of other business in the inscription, but then a complimentary mention of the Antigonid king, those lines were chiseled out. And so you've got these stones in, in the epigraphical museum, for instance, in Athens nowadays, where, you know, you've got line after line after line of text, and then five and a half lines erased, and then a few more lines, and then a couple of words erased like this. So that was the culmination of this Greek resentment of Macedonian rule, and Antigonid rule in particular, because that had been the chief dynasty that had ruled the Greeks. The Argiads, the prior dynasty, hadn't uh, ruled Greece for long. That was only Philip II and Alexander the Great were the only to surviving Argians, but it was chiefly the Antigone dynasty who rules Greece, and it was they who then suffered the consequences of it, as you say, by effectively letting the Romans in. On that note, I think this is a great place to end our conversation, and I thank you for taking the time to join me on the show and to bring such an underrated and understudied figure to light. If anyone wanted to learn more about Antigonus and where to pick up a copy of your book, uh, where can they go to get it? And are there any links you would wish to promote or any future projects upcoming in the pipeline? I've always got projects in the pipeline. <laughs> I'm a fanatical writer. Um, no, I have a website. It's uh, robinwaterfield.com. And, you know, I post all my books are listed there. Actually, I'm having a bit of trouble with it at the moment. So two of the most recent books have not been listed there because for some reason it's not taking them on. Uh, but that's basically at robinwaterfield.com. And where the, where the book is available, I mean, the old answer to that used to be available at all good bookshops. So I'll say that one. It's certainly on Amazon and places like that. Well, I'll be happy to include those all in the episode notes and in the podcast description as per usual. So uh, in the meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me and thank you all for listening. And you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>